Hello and shalom everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Today we are speaking with Rachel Azaria, a member of the Knesset and a feminist advocate. Azaria is an incredible, incredible woman. Like myself, she comes from a mixed Sephardi and Ashkenazi background, and her start in politics was, well, it was by happenstance. Seeing the injustice women in her own community were experiencing, she decided to be an active part of fighting for change. And so she began a career in politics that has transcended just that sphere. Instead, Azaria has become an integral part of Israeli feminism and a strong voice for change. In this conversation, I want to ask Rachel, has this process of community transformation been isolating or has it created more unity between women than ever before? How does she deal with backlash from anti-feminist forces? How does she remain confident in the face of this backlash? I am so excited for you guys to meet Rachel Azaria today. Let's do this thing. Rachel Azaria is an Israeli mover and shaker. She served as deputy mayor and member of the Jerusalem City Council from 2018 to 2013 and was elected to the 20th Knesset as a member of the Kulani Party serving as a member of the Finance Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Defense Committee, the Ethics Committee, and chairing the Reforms Committee. During her term as a member of the Knesset, Azaria passed laws relating to working moms and worked against laws which aimed to minimize pluralistic Judaism. Prior to her political activity, she was a social activist in environmental organizations and led an orthodox feminist organization concerning women's rights. Azaria established the Yushalmi Municipal Party in 2008, representing pluralistic views and work on behalf of young families by improving the level and conditions of education and by lowering the cost of living. Azaria was the leading voice in the campaign against segregation and disappearance of women from the public sphere. She instructed the work toward breaking the monopoly of the Rabbanut, especially in the issue of Kashrut, a reform that was adopted recently by the government. In mid-2019, Rachel established a think tank focusing on the relationship between Jewish and democratic state and is working on promoting these ideas in cooperation with governmental, culture, and non-governmental organizations. She is the author of Guided Revolution, a book about social change in Israel. Azaria is the chairwoman of Life and Environment, the Israeli Union of Environmental NGOs. Rachel Azaria, it's wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you for sitting down with us. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Amazing. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about your background and where you're from? I come from a very um, mixed family, I guess. Uh, my mother made Aliyah on her own from the United States when she was 18. Uh, my grandparents both escaped from Germany um, yeah. in the mid and late 30s. Um, my father made Aliyah from Tunis. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very... Um, also very passionate about studying and also was very important to him and very persistent and even stubborn. So he actually graduated from high school and went to, after the army, went to study at universities, the only of his 10 siblings that actually um, graduated. Um, So, and they both met at Hebrew U. Um, Yeah, at social work. They both went there to, you know, save the world. Um, so, so <laughs> and that's, that's what you do now. So yeah, that's go. my background. <laughs> yeah. I was born and I, I was born into a very, um, 
very Zionist family, very family that we, from a very young age, we knew that the state of Israel was a miracle and we have a lot of responsibility towards it. So, And coming from that background where you have parents who chose to make Aliyah and this this central political Zionism in in your upbringing, did that play a role in your decision to eventually go into politics? So actually, I never thought I would be in politics. I mean, and yeah. I, I even I'm not even sure that I ever I've ever made that very clear decision. Um, what happened was that I was a social activist. I started as a student at Hebrew. It's actually actually I started as a debater. I was very active at the debating club, debating society. I would go to world championships. I was number four in Europe. You know, I was very, very active. Wow, yeah, yeah, very out there. And, you know, reading The Economist every week to make sure, you yeah. know, that I know exactly what would be the topics and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one day I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, I felt that arguing for something that I didn't believe in, because in, in debating, you know, they tell yeah. you pro, you're against they. Um, I felt I couldn't do it anymore. And then I became very active. I used my skills and I became mm-hmm. active in the um, in the lobbying for environmental issues in the Knesset. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was just active in Green Course for nearly a decade. And I started running a feminist organization for helping women get their Jewish divorce. Um, yeah. And in the meantime, I got married. I had mm-hmm. two little girls. I, we lived in Jerusalem to the man mm-hmm. I loved. Everything was like, my life was my dream come true. Anything I ever, you know, ever imagined working, my career was, everything was just the way it was supposed to be. But so many of my friends started leaving the city. And that's mm-hmm. when I realized that if I wanted to continue li- living in Jerusalem, I have to do something about it. So, mm-hmm. so how come your friends were leaving the city? Because at the time we had an ultra-Orthodox mayor. And the feeling mm-hmm. was that whoever was liberal in any way, we just mm-hmm. stopped being, you know, relevant for the city. And there were yeah. a lot of Chiloni and, you know, modern Orthodox that were just leaving the city. Uh, so that's when I was wondering what to do. And I had this discussion and, uh, and a very good friend of mine from Green Course and founded Green Course. He told me, you know, the way to make a difference was through politics. I was like, okay, what does that mean? So he said, why don't you start your own list for city council? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then yeah. we got a group together. I was I was 29 years old. I mean, God knows what I was thinking. <laughs> and, I established, and I remember I, I it was before Facebook. So, you know, we put ads mm-hmm. in different places saying we're going wow. to have an evening to discuss the future of Jerusalem. And more than 100 people came to this evening. Wow. That we, we, It was way beyond any of our expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's when, you know, we decided I was together with a couple of friends and we decided we we're going to start a list for city council. That was my first political campaign. That's when I realized how hard political campaigns are. <laughs> <laughs> but I keep doing them, so I guess it's okay. And then when I was elected for city council, um I after a year I realized I was good at it. Mm-hmm. I knew how to get, you know, get the work done, not only from, you know, demonstrating from outside, but also from actually sitting around the table and getting, getting things done. Um, and also the feeling was that, you know, when I was demonstrating outside, it was like, you know, I would write the papers, I would organize the demonstrations. I was active. I was an activist for nearly a decade. So, you know, I really knew how to do it, but suddenly, you know, why should I demonstrate? I can just sit around the table. I can make the decisions. Um, and it was, 
it was amazing. I mean, really, the the I I got so much done as a city councilwoman. Um, mm. So I think later, what I used to say is that politics chose me more than I chose mm. politics. And for many years, yeah. I was also ambivalent about it. I mean, I was a very active politician uh, for many years, but I, I always felt that at the end of the day, I'm uh, I'm. I, I do social change more than I actually do politics. You said that you ran on this idea of a new Jerusalem, of, of trying to fix the problems that were holding women back. Yeah. What were those promises? What were those ideas that inspired so many people? Pe- that inspired so many people to rally behind you? Um, so at first, it was keeping Jerusalem a pluralistic city. Um, and uh, representing young families. At the time, like even the term young families in Hebrew was a term that we made up. We invented it. And I remember we're sitting around the table and saying, how do we explain that we, there are, you know, there are needs that have to be met. And, you know, and we're a group and we can rally for these issues. And I, I said, you know, we have to call ourselves families. And someone mm. says, you know, you can't say families because if you say families in Hebrew, sometimes it sounds like, you know, a mob. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone. <laughs> so, so then we're like, hey, I mean, <laughs> we need a new term. And then some, and then we're like discussing. And then I thought about young families. And they're like, okay, mm. great. Young. And today everyone uses it in Israeli politics. I mean, it became wow. like, it's, yeah, it's like, it's a catchy phrase, young families. Um you know, so, in America, the mob and politicians are not that different. So it makes sense here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't, want, you don't want young families to think that you're rallying for the mob. <laughs> that was one issue. And the second was keeping Jerusalem pluralistic. And actually, during the campaign, suddenly what happened was that they wouldn't put my poster on the bus. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, like, you know, every politician has to have their poster everywhere. And mm. all the men politicians had their poster everywhere and I couldn't have my poster anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that became like, it wasn't supposed to be, but it became a major part of the campaign because suddenly, you yeah. know, we managed to show how, you know, Jerusalem wasn't pluralistic that, you know, in Israel, the legal authorities are very different. So basically mm. I got very quickly to Supreme Court to discussion the Supreme Court um, before wow. the elections. And the Supreme Court was very clear about it and they had to have my poster on the bus. So my poster was put on the bus the day of the elections. <laughs> we had a wow. very small budget. <laughs> so it was only five buses. <laughs> but uh, th- it's it's about the, the principle behind yeah, it that you're a woman with a face like everyone else. I yeah, know, of course, of course. But it's funny because, you know, it wasn't a major part of our campaign. It was just like, you know, to know that we have our posters out there yeah. and it became this big issue. And then there were so many people that were backing us up because, you know, how come a woman can't have the, her poster on the bus? Yeah. So so those were the issues that I, I was advocating and also for environmental issues. But it was basically young family. More than anything, it was young families and keeping Jerusalem a pluralistic city. Um, when I got elected, I became active in many, you know, different uh, uh, spheres. But that's where that's where i started and through your work you've spoken a lot about really similar issues from women's faces being on an ad on a bus to campaigning against banning women from singing in public yeah. or separating women from men on city sidewalks or forcing them to sit in the back of a bus um how has that become central to your work it just kind of happened um what happened was that after they wouldn't put my poster on the bus so it it didn't kind of happen i guess i have to be more 
um, it, it kind of, it bugged me. Like, yeah. how, how did that happen? How come we didn't even know, you know, who made the decision? Who was around the table when this decision was made? Clearly, it was none of the people I know, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine who would agree to that. Um, and, then, and then I heard of these buses that women have to sit in the back of the bus. And we decided to, you know, do something about it. And we heard there's going to be a huge demand. No, we didn't know it was huge. We knew, they're going to, we knew that there was going to be an ultra-Orthodox demonstration on this issue because that there was a government committee you know, mm-hmm. discussing this issue. Um, and we decided to have an opposing um, demonstration. So mm-hmm. we came to the demonstration. You know, we came with these beautiful signs, all excited, yeah. like 30 people, mostly women and a couple of men. And we stood on the other side of the street of the demonstration. And within seconds, our signs were torn. <laughs> we started getting beaten up. We were spat oh. on. It was horrible. And then the oh police arrived and we were like, you know, look at what's happening. They said, yeah, you're bothering this big demonstration. So we we're just bothering anyone. Just standing here. We didn't do anything. Oh no, 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 no. They said, um, they said, you know, you have to move away. And we're like, we're not going anywhere. This is our, you know, democratic right, whatever. They said, okay, if you're not yeah. leaving every minute that you're not leaving, we're arresting one of you. Oh, yeah, but wow. it's Israeli police. It's not American police. Uh, yeah. very <laughs> I mean, American <laughs> police have our the fair share of problems here too. <laughs> no, no, what I'm saying, it's Israeli police. So when you, basically they started arresting and after five minutes, I realized that, you know, arguing isn't working and that's what we just, yeah. you know, we moved away. Arresting in Israel in demonstration usually means that they take you to the other side of the city and they just let you out of the, out of the, oh my gosh. yeah, yeah, out of the uh, police car. It's not real arresting. Yeah. So don't worry, yeah. everything was okay. Um, yeah. And that's, then the next day, Sunny, I got a phone call from the, from the attorney, not from the attorney, from the lawyer that is, yeah. a, that went to the Supreme Court on this issue of women sitting in the back of the bus. And she was like, can you come and meet with us? I was like, sure. We came in, we, we had this meeting. I said, listen, no one is interested in this issue. We saw that you held this demonstration. Maybe you're willing to help in the campaign. And I think that's the moment that I really got hands into this campaign. Because when they wouldn't yeah. put my poster on the bus, it could have just been, you know, this one, you know, occasional issue. But once I became active on this issue of women sitting in the back of the bus, suddenly we were, you know, we were, we were a, a growing group of activists, a lot of American women, by the way, because of, it was mm-hmm. a very Rosa Parks story kind of. Yeah. And what happened was that ultra-Orthodox women started calling me on these issues. And then they would tell me where there are other, you know, separate, there were banks with separate hours, there were supermarkets, there were stores, there were anything you can imagine. It's like there were health clinics. Um, Yeah, male doctors could only attend male patients and female doctors could only attend female. I mean, really everything just got out of it. It was felt like it was, it was, it was going crazy. And Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, there was a member of the city council that called me and he told me about the separate streets that are going to happen. I was like, why are you calling me? You're ultra-Orthodox member of city council. You can handle it. He said, no, 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 no. None of us are willing to deal with this. these people. They're too radical. You know, the rabbis won't back me up. He said, you're not afraid of anything. 
<laughs> so I didn't, know, I didn't, I didn't realize about that about myself, but that's how he phrased it. He said, you know, that's a, maybe that's a positive thing to hear. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's always surprising to how other people perceive you, you know? It's, yeah. And I mean, you have every reason to be proud of that because I think as women, we're always told to be humble, but you've done incredible things and you should be celebrating that. Thank you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so, so he was saying, you know, you you're not afraid so maybe you can do something about those like okay let me think and we got back to the group of activists I was like what do you say i was like yeah of course we're going to do something about it and we sent out the letters to the police and to whoever we needed to and and you know they said no no don't worry everything will be okay and then the first night of sukkot when the the separation was supposed to happen i remember i was pregnant so i was very tired and i you know got together we went to to start to check what's happening um, and there was this huge mechitza that crossed the, mm. the streets and it was obviously, um, sidewalk for women and street and sidewalk for men. Cause it's never separate, but equal. Um, and mm. it, it was, it was hard to see. Uh, the next day we went to Supreme court, um, and the discussion was a couple of days later. And the Supreme Court, they were very clear and they said, you know, you can't, you can't do that. Um, it's not permitted by Israeli law. But there was no law that said that you're not allowed to, to separate or to have segregation. That, that, was never, that was never written in Israeli law. It was all by this basic law that's called freedom and dignity for all. Okay, because we don't have a constitution. We have some basic laws. So it was according to that. Yeah. I won't tell you the entire story. I mean, uh, there was the verdict on the buses. And then again, there was an issue with separate streets. And at this time, again, I went to the Supreme Court and the mayor got fed up of me campaigning on these issues. And he kicked me mm -hmm. out of the coalition after I won wow. in the Supreme Court. Wow. wow. And that was one of the hardest moments in my, polit my political career. I've had so many other hard moments, <laughs> but I think that the first one, you really remember. Yeah, no, that's, and was that legal? Were they allowed to do oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible, but it was legal. Um, yeah. I was terrified. I was, I was sure that, you know, it's over. That's it, you know. Everything I worked for, I worked, remember I told you, I worked so hard to be a, a member of city council. And once I was a member of city council, I felt I could do so much, but it's like, it was just, it was just horrible. Um, but very quickly, it took me a while, but what happened was that we realized that we have to get it out to the press, like what happened, that he kicked me out. And at first they weren't interested because it was the day Gilad Shalit came back from, uh, from Gaza. So it was like, what are you talking about? But after two days later, someone put a, um, um, someone posted on Facebook, um, this, uh, how do you call it? That people sign? How do you call it? A petition. A petition. Someone posted on Facebook yeah. a petition um, and mm -hmm. thousands of people started signing. And then suddenly a journalist wow. saw the petition and she was like, were you kicked out of the coalition? I was like, yeah, why don't we know about it? I said, you know, Gilad Shalit. So she was like, you have to come. We mm -hmm. have to do something about it. And then suddenly wow. it was everywhere. And suddenly our big campaign that was going on for more than three years and barely interested anyone, suddenly the entire country was talking about it. And suddenly everyone, wow. everyone was suddenly convinced that it's horrible to tell women where to sit in the bus and that it's horrible to have separate yeah. streets. And 
And then, you know, we were like, we have, this is, this is the moment to get legislation. You know, we need the government to do something mm. about Because remember, it's not illegal. Every time we had to go to the Supreme Court, because it's not really illegal. Um, but it was very hard to convince politicians. But at that point, yeah. Hillary Clinton suddenly chipped in and she said, yeah. Wow. And she said that segregation and disappearance of women from public sphere could be a threat to Israeli democracy. Da, 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 da. <laughs> wow. And that's when suddenly the Israeli government, you know, <laughs> woke up and were like, oh, we have to do something about it. And they formed this committee that's had for a long time. And there is the legislation in Israel is very clear now. And it's illegal in any way to separate, wow. to have, yeah, to separate women, to tell women where to sit, what to do. It's just, it's illegal. And it wasn't before. So, and it took me a while to realize that if Neil Bakat wouldn't kick me out of the coalition, probably none of this would have happened. So. Yeah. yeah. So often when yeah. you fail or when, you know, you're sure horrible things happened, it's just, you know, a next step to something else, sometimes even better. There is so much that I want to ask you about this, but from just from right off the bat, you talk so much about the woman from um, the lawyer who'd argued in front of the Supreme Court before the female journalists who helped get your story out in public, even the American politicians who are women who helped you out along the way. Um, a lot of your story has to do with women helping other yeah. women. So you talk a lot about how these women have, have worked together yeah. to get this work done. Do you see your work as a, a part of that larger conversation of women empowering women and helping each other to, to get farther? Oh, in of society? course. <laughs> of yeah. course. And, and see what I, I think, I think one of the reasons the story about the segregation disappearance of women from public sphere, one of the tipping points was when ultra-Orthodox women started calling me to thank me for this work. Yeah. And when I could be the voice that would explain to Israelis that these women don't like it. Because um, often yeah. what happens is that, um, you know, because of uh, multiculturalism, so, you know, people would say that's how ultra-Orthodox women want to live. That's where they want to sit. That's what they want to do. Who are you to be so paternalistic to tell them, you know, mm -hmm. what they should be doing? Um, yeah. And it felt like a real, you know, a lot of women got together to do this together. And since then, in I think so much of what I've been doing in my political career, um, even when I was in situation where, situations where it was very hard to work on feminist issues, um, also working on you know, early childhood or young families, I see it as feminist, you know, feminist work, yeah. maternity leave, paid maternity leave. Um, I passed legislation that added another week to the paid maternity leave that changed the maternity leave. So there could be also a paternity leave. Um, also issues that have to do for men and women and the family that they, or the father and the mother, that they can, um, they can split the benefits that the government gives to make it possible for both parents to be caregivers. So I worked on a lot of that kind of legislation, um, legislation that made sure that the, you know, the food in the kindergarten is healthy food. And I, I see that also as something feminist because that's part of making it possible for both the parents to go and work and seek their careers and know that their children are being taken care of properly. So the fantastic. Yeah. Point. So I, I think that, you know, it's at the end of the day, I realize that I'm part of this long 
ongoing generations of feminists. And we all do a lot of work to make sure that the next generation has it easier. Um, when things get very hard and I've had a very rocky, um, rocky road. My, my political career was not, uh, the usual career. Um, I was very vocal about things I believed in. Um, and I was willing to pay the price and I paid a lot of prices along the way. And when things get very hard, what I usually do is go to a playground and look at little girls um, playing. And I think that it it always gets gets me very emotional because um, also they're always so naive and, you know, they don't know yet what are the hardships that are <laughs> waiting along the way. Um, and also it kind of, I feel that, you know, it reminds me the sense of responsibility I have to make sure it would be easier for them. Um, yeah. So it's a lot about, I feel, you know, making it easier for other women, opening doors for other women, um, breaking, you know, glass ceilings, just, you know, doing what we need to do. Yeah, this is unbelievable. Your story is incredible. And I think anyone listening to this can't deny it. Um, and as women, a lot of the time, I think that we are told to have this sense of imposter syndrome, the idea that we have to be very humble about what we've accomplished and we can't celebrate it. We can't be proud of it. We can't talk about it from a sense of accomplishment, but instead a sense of diminishment. Have you felt that in your career or have you worked to kind of transcend that and to be confident and strong in the work that you've done? I've never felt an imposter. I mean, I know a lot of women mm -hmm. feel that, that I've never yeah. felt. Um, what I have yeah. felt is a lot of frustration, um, knowing that I know how to get the job done, but it would be very hard for me to get to the position where I can actually get the job done because of the, you know, the, the glass ceiling, because, you know, because, because that's the way it is. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think what happened was that I was very young when I was in a green course and we really managed to, you know, to lead some very, very successful campaigns, environmental campaigns in Israel um, for the railroad from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you know, different issues. So I don't know, that's something I never, I, I didn't feel, but I think that the feeling that it's not fair, that's something I, I, I know I feel <laughs> quite often, you know, yeah. it's just not fair because I know that if I would be a male, um, my life would be so much easier and you know and even if i would be a feminist my life would be so much easier to be a non-feminist woman is so much easier in politics or in you know social yeah. activism and what advice would you have for any woman who does feel that um imposter syndrome is is holding them back how would you advise them to be confident in their abilities as women um just just see how amazing you are I mean, you know, yeah. if you've done what you've done, so you've done it, it's yours. No one else did it yeah. for you. And believe me, no one made it easier for you. <laughs> if you're a woman, yeah. no, no one made it easier for you. You, you know, 
you had to get the job done and you did it. I mean, if you graduated from where you graduated, no one else graduated for you. If you know, if you yeah. got accepted to this job, believe me, it was harder for you than for the men in, uh, sitting around the table. If you're sitting in that yeah. room, chances are that you are extremely, you are probably one of the most talented people sitting around the table. I know, I know that's not PC to say, but you know, I've seen it so many times that, you know, we work true. so hard to get to the to get to the places that we are and you know and i i i see how it works for father people that i think that's part of the feeling you know that's not fair kind of so remember how unfair it is absolutely. and then realize that there's no way that you're an imposter absolutely that could not have said it any better myself um and i i really was moved by the story that you said about watching younger girls playing and seeing the the hope and the naivety and what they're doing and understanding that you have the potential to make the, the future better for, for young women. And that really brings us to our last question and really the purpose of this podcast. We want young women to feel like they have a resource to turn to, to have mentorship from people who have accomplished incredible things. And if there's anyone who's accomplished incredible things, it is by far you. Thank you. Um, what advice would you have for these young girls? If you, if you have the chance to talk to one of them and to tell them about how you want them to navigate the world as a Jewish woman moving into the future, how would you advise them to, to do that with confidence and strength? So I think I have two, um, two answers. One is take mm -hmm. this whole notion of tzniut. Um, is that, do you say tzniut? It's modesty, modesty yeah. like take this whole notion of modesty it's new that we're all educated and just just tear it apart and throw it to the rubbish that was very british sorry <laughs> i'll say it again <laughs> i'll say it again no it's okay <laughs> um i just I, I feel that you know from day one we're taught you know uh, don't, don't talk to, to, you know, don't talk too much about yourself. We're all, you know, we all walk a little uh, bent, you know, we, we don't, we don't stand up tall. So, you know, this is something that whenever I talk to teenagers, I tell them, you know, and I do it sometimes in Orthodox schools. I'm like, you know, just everything they tell you, just ignore, just when you leave this building, throw it away. Go on to your life without everything that you were taught, you know, to be humble, to be modest, to be, you're so much of that without even noticing that you don't need any of that. And the second thing I want to say is embrace all of your failures. Just learn that if you're going to take risks, you are going to fail. And sometimes your failures will be so painful. Believe me, I've failed so many times. And my mother says that whenever you fail, you need to think about it as a kick um, on your behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it either, it either, you either fall on your face or it kicks you forward or you jump forward. And you need to, every time you fail, you know, embrace it. You know, if you need to mourn, you can mourn. If you need to be upset, that's okay. But then take the power and take the strength that you got from that failure and move ahead. And I, I really like the movie Rocky. I know it's a very kind of, so do I. <laughs> so there's that sentence that he says, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving on. 
And I feel that if you're going to be a powerful woman or if you're going to be enthusiastic about what you do, and if you're really going to be out there to conquer the world, to change the world, to make the world a better place for your children, for other women, for for humanity, for anything, for the human race, you have to have this feeling that you can get hit and you can keep moving on. And it's hard when you fail, you feel that everything, you know, that you're the failure, that, that, you know, the failure defines you, but it doesn't, it doesn't. Who you are is so much more than this one moment that you failed and you really need to look forward. And I want to remind you the story of, I was sure I, I failed terribly when the mayor kicked me out of the coalition. I was sure, you know, that that's like the worst thing that could happen. It took me a year or two to realize that that was a very good moment, but it takes a while till you see that. And it's also about what you do about it, that you don't just, you know, go home and cry, but we put that petition out there and, you know, we campaign, so. Rachel Zaria, I cannot thank you enough. It's been so wonderful to speak with you and to hear your story. And I'm sure that anyone listening to this is as inspired and moved as I am. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. Thank you. So many times in this conversation, I had to stop myself from just sitting there in amazement. You know, on this podcast, we always talk about giving our listeners access to mentors, of documenting the stories of these incredible women, sharing them with the world. But honestly, through this process, my perspective on feminism has been shifted so greatly. In sitting down with incredible women like Rachel Azaria, I felt so strengthened. And today's interview was a huge example of that. Speaking with Rachel, the main energy she exudes is confidence. It's contagious in the best way. She has accomplished so much and she freaking knows it. And as a young woman myself, confidence is something I've often struggled with. I've struggled to own who I am without apology. I've struggled with imposter syndrome, with believing that my accomplishments are worth being proud of. I think that so many of us struggle with this because as women, we are often taught to shrink ourselves, not to celebrate ourselves. Listening to this conversation today, I hope that everybody is as inspired by Rachel as I am. And I hope that we can commit as a community to uplifting each other when it's hard to uplift ourselves. I hope that we can commit to building ourselves up instead of making ourselves feel small. That collective hope for change, that's feminism. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. Share your thoughts with us at podcast.jewishunpacked.com. And don't forget to join us next week when we'll be speaking with Melina Saval, pop culture journalist and editor at Variety Magazine. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. And of course, follow Unpacked on social media. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.